center stage left. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Eli James here, and the scene is set for a New Testament study of the law. Uh, Dan, not going to be with us today. He is. Uh, he just called me by phone a few minutes before the show today and said he can't make it. He's not at home. So uh, we were going to plan on doing a New Testament study anyhow. So I'll just do that solo. And I've selected an item from uh, the internet about the law in the New Testament. Since we're in the Old Testament in Exodus uh, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, where the statutes and judgments, obviously the Ten Commandments and the related statutes and judgments are being discussed. We uh, are continuing this theme in the New Testament today. And I just wanted to bring up, bring forth something from last week, uh, Exodus twenty two twenty eight, a really horrible translation that occurs in uh, Exodus twenty. Let's see here, uh, twenty two, and uh, let me go fetch it here. So anyway, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Eli James. Uh, glad to be here again and. Uh, Everything is go. Uh, no technical problems the last few weeks with uh, at least my home computer. Anyway, so it's Exodus 22, verse 28. And let me scroll down to that verse, which states, Thou shalt not revile the gods. Now, that's very odd. Okay, we're told we, we should only worship Yahweh, and we should worship no other gods. So this verse seems to be telling us that we should not revile them. Well, I mean, if you, we should revile them. Uh, you know, we should uh, worship Yahweh exclusively and uh, you know, disregard and, and really hate the other gods because they will always lead us astray. So there's really something wrong with this verse. Let me read the whole verse. Thou shalt not revile the gods, nor curse the ruler of thy people. Okay? So it turns out that the gods is Elohim. It's the word Elohim. and uh, But it can't possibly mean gods in the sense of divine or semi-divine or spirit or what have you. So uh, other worldly entities that people commonly refer to as gods. This can't be referring to that, because uh, this is referring to something we should not revile. So, it's pretty obvious that it should have been translated magistrate. Thou shalt not revile the magistrates, nor curse the rulers of thy people. Okay, that's how it should have been translated. The King James Translation Committee just simply got this wrong. You can expect a few mistakes uh, when you're dealing uh, with a document that's several million words, <laughs> right? And uh, I think this one just slipped through the cracks, and it should have been translated magistrate, not God, okay? Elohim is the plural for the, uh, you know, those gods that are lesser, less than Yahweh, and it includes the angelic beings of the, let's call it the pantheon of, of uh, the, the the biblical uh, spirit world. Okay, as uh, plainly demonstrated in Genesis chapters one and two, that uh, those are being the army of Yahweh in heaven, in the in the subquantum universe. The the, the like fish swim in the ocean. We are swimming in an ocean of consciousness and power, which Yahweh has created for us. And that is the sort of invisible ocean, just as water is invisible to the fish. Uh, this ocean of Yahweh's being, Yahweh's body, is invisible to us, although we can access it occasionally. Uh, it's just not common for people to perceive that reality that underlies this reality, okay, the the quantum reality that physicists have discovered in recent years, which is utterly ignored by uh, mainstream science today because they don't want you to understand that this world, this physical world, is informed by a completely different invisible world of power, energy, and consciousness, namely Yahweh's consciousness that uh, informs us and gives us our being, our personality, etc., etc. 
All right, so that is a really bad translation, Exodus 22:28. So getting to today's topic, uh, I w- want to quickly uh, quote a couple of uh, items from the New Testament. And this is from my article entitled The Exoneration of Paul, Part 3. Paul confirms the law, and uh, this, uh, this stuff is from the old Anglo-Saxon Israel uh, site that's available uh, on the Wayback Machine, uh, but uh, I haven't had time to uh, fill, fill up the, the new site. It only has a few articles, but this one, the, the Exoneration series, four-part series of Paul, showing that he is not an antinomian, and he is, in fact, a pro-law. But uh, you know, we have to understand that the word law is used in different senses, just as it is today. Sometimes people use the law. I fought the law, and the law won, <laughs> right? That could be simply a reference to the police or the whole police department rather than the legal system, a judge, a lawyer, and and the body of written law. The word law does not necessarily mean any of that or all of it. It may mean only part of it, okay? And so this is how the word law is used in Scripture as well. References to law, you have to say, well, what part of the law is being referred to here? And very few antinomians bother to ask that question. Anyway, Romans 7.12, Paul says, Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Does that sound like the statement of an antinomian? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. So he's talking about you know the, the, the general moral law here, because he's talking about the, the commandments. And Proverbs 28, 4 through 18, They that forsake the law and praise the wicked... But such as keep the law contend with them. Evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek Yahweh understand all. Better is the poor that walks in uprightness than he that is perverse in his ways, though he be rich. Whoso keeps the law is a wise son or or, uh, child. But he that is a companion of riotous men (laughs) shames his father. Okay, the company you keep reflects upon you. He that covers his sins shall not prosper. I mean, you hide, you're a hypocrite. You complain about other people committing certain kinds of sins, but you do that yourself in private. But whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. Happy is the man that fears always, but he that hardens his heart shall fall into Mischief, so don't be too proud of yourself if you're getting away with stuff. Whoso walks uprightly shall be saved, but he that is perverse in his ways shall fall at once. And boy, there's going to be a big falling. (laughs) Of course, Paul's prophecy that there will be a falling away, apostasy, of the entire Christian world. That has uh, become uh, good. Okay, so uh, it sounds like... um, Swamp Fox says there's a bit of clipping in the sound. Hmm. I may have to, uh, after today's show, I may have to reboot. There's, uh, I, I did a, a Skype interview with a guy yesterday, and we noticed there was a lot of clipping in my sound, too. Let me just check the, the meter real quick, folks, because this is um, testing one, two. No, it's not going. It's not even going into the red. Not even close. So I don't know what caused. I may have to just... Uh, reboot after today's show anyway so the article that we have is the uh, faith facts the the law and in the new covenant law in the new covenant by charles s meek i put the link in the chat room the new testament teaches that we are not under law but under grace romans 6 14 etc Does this mean that the moral law, theft, murder, adultery, no longer apply? Of course not. So how are we to understand this? By reasonable inference, we can see that there were three types of law in the Old Testament. One, the ceremonial law, which included the eating and drinking laws, as well as the sacrificial system and circumcision. Two, civil laws. Remember that the Hebrews were under a theocracy. And that would simply fall under the statutes and judgments. The Ten Commandments 
were applied to specific cases, as we've been talking about on this series with Dan, that uh, specific punishments apply to people. You know, if your if your ox gores somebody to death <laughs> and it's an accident, then you are not guilty. However, if that ox has a history of goring people, then you may even be liable. Well, you certainly be liable for that, uh, so it would be roughly equivalent to, to manslaughter. So th- these are the statutes and judgments that uh, we have been covering in Exodus uh, 21 uh, through, well, whatever, we're going to be continuing next week, 21, 22, 23, and more, wherever the, and we'll be doing that in Deuteronomy as well, where the law is recapitulated. So these are the civil laws, and three moral laws, most of the time, when Paul and the other writers spoke of the law being abolished, they were speaking of the Levitical ceremonial laws. The New Testament repealed the laws under the Levitical code, but the moral law remains if in effect. So far, so good. Uh, pretty much uh, nothing there for me to disagree with. Here are examples of the repeal of the eating and drinking laws. Mark 7.19, Acts 10.12-15, Romans 14.17, Colossians 2.11-16. Now, very often people get this wrong, so let me, um, let me click on, he's got links here, uh, the Acts, because that's often very much confused, because the, the Acts chapter 10 is not about food. <laughs> the Acts chapter 10 is not about food. He quotes here, and there were all, in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Now, are we supposed to believe that Yahweh cleansed all dirty food, all unclean food, and making it edible? How about worms? <laughs> How about pig? No. The whole of chapter 10 is a metaphor for the lost 10 tribes of Israel. Because Peter did not want to acknowledge the non-Judahite Israelites of the dispersion as his equals. Paul explains to him they were cleansed just as the Judahites were cleansed. That's what Acts chapter 10 is about. Because the Judeo-Christian world have no idea of the reality of the so-called lost ten tribes, the dispersed ten tribes which did include representatives of the other through the, the Levites, the Benjaminites, and the Judahites. Many of those were taken captive and added to the dispersion. Since they know absolutely nothing about our history, they, they jump to this conclusion that Acts chapter 10 is about literal food. No, it's not. It's about the forgiveness uh, at Calvary of the sins of all 12 tribes, not just the house of Judah. That's what this is about. And again, because they don't know any history, they don't know the Bible, period. You've got to know the historical setting uh, around these verses. So the major error by this author here, claiming that Acts 10 verses 12 through 15 is an abrogation of the food laws. It is not. Continuing, in Hebrews 9 and 10, the writer, probably Paul, explains that the essence of the law was the sacrificial system. Again, this is very important. You have to know which law is being talked about, especially in Paul. Uh, There are some verses in the uh, four Gospels that antinomians cite as being opposed to the law, but uh, invariably they're absolutely wrong. Uh, Paul is more of a problem because Paul has been translated very, very poorly. And uh, the the authors, the King James and other translators, have failed miserably to differentiate the different types of law that Paul is talking about. Sometimes he's talking about the ceremonial law, sometimes the Levitical law, sometimes the moral law. And you have to check the context 
to see what he is actually talking about. So, let's continue. Uh, the sacrifice. These things together constitute the ceremonial law. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was the replacement for the system of temple sacrifices for sin. Yeah, he was the last sacrifice. Any doubt about the sacrificial laws being valid was removed in A.D. 70 with the destruction of the temple. And that is actually a twofold purpose, folks. Number one, Yahweh did not want the Jews, the Edomite Jews of Judea, i.e. the scribes and Pharisees, to have control of the temple, so he destroyed it. <laughs> he had the Romans destroyed it. And the Romans, of course, were Israelites, uh, descended from Zerah Paul clearly tells us this as well. And so in any case, yeah, yes, this, this is an absolutely correct statement. The, uh, any doubt about the sacrificial laws being uh, abolished was removed in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple. Very good. And along with it, the sacrificial system ended forever. Amen. So why are the Jews trying to rebuild or build a third temple in order to institute, reinstitute animal sacrifice? Is it, it's incredible that even the antinomian Judeo-Christians applaud when the Jews say, oh, we're going to rebuild the third temple and we're going to reinstitute animal sacrifice. Are these people daft? I guess so. Jesus became the temple. No, we are the temple. Per John 2.19 and Revelation 21.22. No longer could anyone say that they were saved by temple sacrifices Jesus is the only way. Hurrah, hurrah, hurrah. Very well said. An example of the, well, they say Jewish. I'll just scratch out Jewish and replace it with uh, Mosaic. An example of the Mosaic civil law also being repealed is John 8, 1 through 11. So let me click on that and see what he's quoting here. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, and I've uh, argued uh, this point many times, that I believe what he wrote on the ground was the names of her accusers (laughs) who had actually lay with this prostitute. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Okay, so this is not the elimination of the law against adultery no way the what what yashua was complaining about was the lack of a proper trial you can't just accuse somebody and stone her or him you have to have a trial you have to have witnesses testifying for and against that's the the way it's supposed to be done and we still do it this way so this is a, a, a kind of overstatement uh, by this person, okay? That's what that episode, in fact, it ends, go and sin no more, is how the episode ends, which means the law has not been done away with, okay? So, again, uh, it, the civil law has not been repealed. So this is a blatant error by this author, Okay. Jesus prevented the standard Jewish penalty. Yeah, in this case, it's correct. Jewish penalty of stoning to death from being carried out. It was the scribes and Pharisees who were egging the people on here. He affirmed the existence and nature of the sin. Go and sin no more, but change the penalty for the sin. No, he didn't. The new new covenant simply postpones the judgment, postpones the penalty until the judgment day. Every Uh, every foul word we utter (laughs) will be recorded and used against us if necessary at the judgment day. So don't think for one second that uh, you can get away with anything. Another example is 1 Corinthians 5, 
uh, verses 1 through 5, where Paul does not demand the death penalty for incest. Very interesting. Uh, Okay, let me click there. That's got to be wrong. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such kind as does not exist even among the nations, even among the black Africans, that someone has his father's wife. Ooh, ooh. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this is this deed would be removed from your midst. Okay, they, well, uh, okay. They didn't have the civil arrangement in the, the in this Roman dominated world to put people to death. Plus, you know, again, they would have had to have a trial for such a person. Didn't have, let's call it the infrastructure to do this because they were still an occupied people under Roman law and the Romans couldn't care less about, about incest. So this, this, this verse does not eliminate the death penalty. It, it simply postpones it till the judgment day. I'll continue reading here. Anyway, Paul says, you should, since you can't judge this person and uh, give a legal penalty, just get rid of them. Uh, remove this person from your midst. Don't, you shouldn't have incestuous people coming to your gatherings. Verse 3, for I on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Okay, so the sin is not, uh, is not denied at all. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, if that person repents. Okay? So, Paul is saying in verse 5 that the judgment is delayed until the second coming. All right? Not that you can get away with anything. (laughs) We can't. (laughs) Not that I can or you can. So, again, a, a kind of overstatement. Uh, this guy is better than most Judeos, but uh, still, uh, his uh, his uh, description of Acts chapter ten is horrible. Anyway, and also his conclusion uh, of on these verses that he's citing. But nevertheless, it's better than mainstream Judeo Christianity. So where Paul does not demand a death penalty, but he clearly delays it until the judgment day, and this is for incest. Note, this is why Christians do not call for the death penalty for homosexuality. And other, that's false. Paul clearly says these people are worthy of death. Romans chapter 1 and 2, he says they are worthy of death. But the Christians did not have a legal system under which to hold trial at this point in time. Paul was all in the process of organizing Israelite communities at that time, and they, they, did, they did not have the ability to put people on trial. So he's simply saying, well, this person's judgment will be delayed. Next paragraph here. The distinction between moral law and Old Testament civil or ceremonial law is standard Christian theology. A biblical example of this separation is found in 1 Corinthians 7.19, where Paul makes a distinction between rules of circumcision and moral law. And also Hebrews 7, 11 through 19, etc. An internet search will reveal that this distinction is common in Christian theology, but even without calling on theologians to make the distinction, there is an obvious difference between theft or murder and circumcision or temple rituals. So obvious, in fact, that the New Testament writers did not have to explain it in detail and merely assumed it. Yeah, because the book is written to Israel, right? Who were Israelites who were very familiar with Old Testament law, except, of course, the dispersed Israelites, who uh, had uh, totally ignored, but nevertheless had uh, a not always a humble spirit, but nevertheless uh, obeyed the law instinctively. Let me put it that way. Uh, in general, not always, of course, there's always rogues and rebels among us who uh, you know, just will never obey any law. And so the the Greco-Roman world had tons of these Israelites, most of whom were good people, 
and we still call it live and let live, <laughs> right? But uh, they d- didn't obey the laws of Yahweh, uh, the official rules. But b- by and large, they were good people. That's about the best I could say. Anyway, the distinction among the different types of laws is standard even in Mosaic thought. Oh, so, well, in this case, Jewish thought is correct because he's talking about rabbis. See the article 613 commandments. But whatever a rabbi says is uh, duplicitous. Jesus simplified the law. Instead of some 613 legalistic Jewish commandments, Jesus reduced, and he's assuming that Jewish commandments are the equivalent of the Mosaic law. That's a false uh, assumption. Jesus reduced the law to the golden rule. He said, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, Matthew 7, 12. This, of course, reflects but simplifies the Ten Commandments. So it doesn't overrule the Ten Commandments. It simply simplifies them. Okay, that's that's a good way of putting it. So uh, anyway, you're not going to get any uh, you know, really detailed accuracy from a Judeo-Christian. This is better than most because he's a pronomian, but his uh, lack of understanding of context and the fact that the Jews are not Israelites and should not be consulted on matters of law, uh, major, major problem here. Let's continue. Actually, uh, let me go to, uh, in my Esort here, Matthew chapter 5. I believe Matthew 5 opens with uh, Yahshua's declaration that uh, the law is not done away with. Okay. And uh, th- that's the Beatitudes and uh, blessing those that do good. Blessing those that do good, especially 5 5. Blessed are the meek. Uh, n- not the fearful, <laughs> but humble, for they shall inherit the earth, okay? Not the boisterous, proud, etc., okay? So, uh, and he he, uh, he upholds the law of divorce. He condemns lust, false, oath, oh, false oaths, and retaliation. Okay, why? Because, again, if someone does you wrong, you're supposed to take them to trial, put it, put it before the community. Since we don't have a legal system worth, <laughs> worth bothering about anymore, you, uh, you don't go there if you don't have to. Okay, so, of course, this is all about Christian Israelites and the way that Israelites uh, interfaced with one another. Continuing here, so uh, again, where uh, even even Yahshua says that uh, the law and the prophets has not been done away with, not one jot or tittle shall be removed from the law till all be fulfilled. Has all been fulfilled yet? No, of course not. Yet, and he says, this is a very good statement here, yet the New Testament actually strengthened moral law. Jesus expanded the sin of adultery to include lust, Matthew 5, verses 27 through 28. In Matthew 5, 21, 22, and 1 John 3, 15, we see that the sin of murder actually includes hatred. And Jesus placed conditions of his love, saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14, 15. Underline that verse, folks, John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Indeed, at least nine of the Ten Commandments were reaffirmed as valid in the New Testament. Uh, I think he missed the tenth. (laughs) Some argue that the Sabbath day commandment is no longer valid because Christ has become our Sabbath rest. Do a Google search for Ten Commandments valid in the New Testament. When Jesus accuses the Pharisees of ignoring the more important matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, That's a good translation, faithfulness instead of faith, because too many Judeos and even some people in identity fail to understand that the word faith does not mean mere belief. It's faithfulness. That is the practice, the daily practice of your belief system, your Israelite belief system. It's not mere belief. Uh, 
and uh, he cites Matthew 23, 23. When Paul quotes parts of the Decalogue, Romans 13, 9, or insists that all scripture, including the Old Testament, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3, 16, when James quotes the law of love, James 2, 8, from Leviticus 19.18, or condemns partiality, adultery, murder, and slander as contrary to the law, James 2.9, uh, 11, James 4.11, and when Peter quotes Leviticus, be holy because I am holy, 1 Peter 1.16, from Leviticus 19.2, some beautiful cross-references here, the unmistakable conclusion is that at least part of the law remains authoritative. All of it remains authoritative, except the ritual sacrifices and, and related matters, you know, such as the donations made to the priesthood uh, in lieu of a ritual of a sacrificial animal, let's say. So, by and large, it's a, it's a good article. It's just uh, false assumptions on verses here and there. Continuing, the demands for obedience to moral law are pervasive in the New Testament. Thank you very much. This statement is worth repeating. The demands for obedience to moral law are pervasive in the New Testament. The writers could say that we are saved through faith or faithfulness, but often in the same book or even in the same paragraph taught the importance of righteous living, i.e. moral law. For example, Paul taught in Romans 2 that the doers of the law will be justified. Uh, this this bears uh, more detail here. Let me go to Romans. I think it's the end of Romans chapter 1 because very recently I was watching a video of uh, John MacArthur, I believe his name is, where he was quoting uh, Paul and the law from Romans chapter 1 and uh, citing the fact that these people need to obey the law, that we need to obey the law, okay? And uh, wherefore God also gave them to uncleanness through... uh, through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. But he he was reading this, and then he all of a sudden stopped. And uh, his face froze (laughs) because he did not want to read the rest of it. Verse 25, Romans 125, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever, amen. No, he didn't stop here. Where is it? Oh, yeah, here's where he stopped. He read verse 25, but then his face froze at verse 26. For this cause, God gave up them up to vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. He's talking about homosexuality here. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men, working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error, which was meat. And when he's uh, done naming all the sins, that uh, people should not commit. He says, Who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Okay? So Paul is in no way eliminating any of the moral law, including homosexuality. But I can see that John MacArthur, when he was getting ready to read these verses... (laughs) saw 501c3 stamped over these verses because he would lose his tax-exempt status if he would criticize homosexuality because the IRS would not permit him to do so. This is the reality of Judeo-Christianity today, folks. They are totally compromised and cannot, cannot teach truth from Scripture. 501c3 is a part of the great apostasy predicted by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. No doubt about that. So, 
uh, again, uh, kind of a, a misstatement here that, uh, no, no, homosexuality stands thoroughly condemned in the New Testament, just as it did in the Old Testament. We just don't have the legal infrastructure. Although we did have, there were laws on the books in Christian countries uh, forbidding homosexuality, but uh, they were rarely put to death, they were rarely put in jail. They were just to go back into the closet <laughs> and don't come out, all right? So you, uh, Christians have been very, uh, how should I put it, tolerant, yet we're being called intolerant today after all of this tolerance. So anyway, so uh, then he says, compare Jeremiah 31:33 and Hebrews 10:16. Of course, that is where Jeremiah predicts that the, the uh, law given to the house of Judah and the house of uh, Israel will be put in our hearts, not abolished, but put in our hearts. Thus, moral law applies to everyone, to all Israelites, whether they accept it or not, or even whether they know it or not. This is referred to by Christian philosophers as natural law, okay? And that's the term used by the founding fathers of this country. They called it natural law. If you think about it, to suggest that moral law no longer exists places one in the camp of moral relativists or sociopaths, yes, and anarchists. Got a lot of anarchy today. But if moral law is not specifically salvational, what is its purpose? Well, it only really applies to Israel. The rest of the world uh, will be made better if they practice Christian law, but we're the ones who have to set the standard. And if we don't set that standard, the rest of the world will say about us, where is your God? (laughs) Why, Why isn't he saving you? Why are white people being systematically murdered? By the gates jab. That's because our people refuse to obey his laws. They're mamby-pamby Christians. Luther and Calvin both taught that there are at least three biblical uses of moral law. These uses are, one, as a mirror to illumine our sinfulness and need for a Savior. Two, to restrain evil, including civil law. And three, a guide to serve as an instrument for God's people to give God honor and glory. In other words, to, to number two regards to anarchy, which we're seeing a lot of today. Anarchy. Uh, defund the police. So, so who's going to save you when you're <laughs> Who do you call? Ghostbusters? If you're being assaulted or somebody's breaking your door down and you call 911, who are they going to send? Black Lives Matter? Antifa? Is that who's going to come to your rescue? Not only are the people today antinomians in the sense that uh, they don't believe in any law, but they're stupid thinking that the police department is unnecessary. Okay, so that again, that's anarchy. A little bit of government is required to keep the, uh, the war, that old-fashioned war of, of all against all, but there's always somebody who's stronger than everybody else, some di- petty dictator comes along and terrorizes the neighborhood, such as the uh, uh, Magnificent Seven, they were hired by the townspeople of a town in Mexico to get rid of the banditos who were constantly plaguing them. Okay? There is no such thing as, uh, as a, a peaceful society anywhere without law. has to have law and has to have some form of, gov- of government. But minimal government and moral government according to Yahweh's laws. That's the only thing that works. And Christian civilization was created by that premise, biblical law. So back to number three, a guide to serve as an instrument for God's people, yeah, Israel, us, to give God honor and glory. To study this further, do a Google search for the three uses of the law. Conclusion. The New Testament writers were not speaking out of both sides of their mouth about how we are saved. 
there is a close relationship between faith and works. That is faithfulness. Whenever you see the word faith, you should automatically think faithfulness. It's a practice. It's not mere belief. Obedience is commanded in the New Testament, but it is not, strictly speaking, salvational. Well, it tends toward it. However, a true saving faith or faithfulness is one that produces good works. Thank you very much. Luther said that the relationship between faithfulness and works is like fire and smoke. A true saving faithfulness will produce good works just as fire produces smoke. We are saved through through faithfulness alone, not faith, because people mistake faith for being mere belief. We are saved through faithfulness. Faithfulness means what? Practicing the law. Practicing brotherly love. That's all that Paul means when he makes that distinction. But the scripture makes a distinction between a living faith and a dead faith. We are not saved by a dead faith, James 2, but rather by a living, penitent, trusting faith or faithfulness in Jesus. Okay, not bad. A couple more uh, small paragraphs here. In years past, Christian pulpits were aflame with righteousness. Yeah. Gee. Remember those days? Many of you are too young to remember those days. But I do. I remember the fire and brimstone sermons. Of which I am an example. I still love to do those fire and brimstone sermons that accentuated the law. And bloody hell if you don't obey the law. And anyway, uh, in years past... Christian pulpits were aflame with righteousness and condemnation of hellfire and brimstone. For example, in the American Great Awakening. Yes, this has sadly been largely lost in modern, (laughs) he uses the same word I used, mamby-pamby, easy believism Christianity. Christianity has lost its power to convert the lost and change the culture. Amen to that. It's far worse in other countries besides America. We should regain the power of the full counsel of God, which concludes all of his law. All right. Very good. Uh, At least he's not an antinomian. You you can't really expect too much from a Judeo-Christian, but uh, this is better than most commentaries on the law. So the vast majority of the Judeo-Churches today will tell you the law has been done away with. Okay, so I'm going to, with the last 15 minutes remaining, I'm going to switch to my document uh, on the exoneration of Paul, part three, Paul confirms the law. And after I quoted Proverbs 28, 4 through 18 to begin the show, and that's from this article, I will just continue with the article. Does Yahweh contradict himself? Was the law only for the Israelites of the Old Testament and not for their descendants in the New Covenant? If so, by what standard will he judge the world at the great day? Is it true, as the dispensationalists teach, that the law was abolished at the cross? Furthermore, and along with the law, were the covenants, which pertained exclusively to Israel, suddenly broadened to include all races and nations? If these doctrines are true, then Yahweh has abrogated all of his promises to true Israel. But Yahweh said, quote, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Malachi 3.6 Either God is a liar or the dispensationalists are liars. With respect to the writings of Paul, it is evident that Paul was always contending against evil men. If Paul was saying that the law had been abolished, what would be the basis of his contentions? The mere fact that Paul constantly admonished evildoers is proof that he was not an antinomian. Okay, and we cited uh, the passage where he condemns incest. Quote, For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. And I think he means, well, certainly a physical death, because whatever physical sins, uh, for example, 
fornication that, that leads to various sexually transmitted diseases, <laughs> you will die of that disease. Okay, but you may also die a spiritual death and not get into the kingdom. But if you, through the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. In other words, don't give in to your uh, lustful passions and other, you know, I mean, that can include murder, crimes of passion. Uh, the, the last thing, the most hated call that police have is a domestic dispute, <laughs> right? Because this involves crimes of passion where they're trying to kill each other, husband and wife, or maybe lover and lover trying to kill each other over some dispute, some passionate dispute they're having. And the police hate to get involved in that kind of stuff because it can't be resolved for one and they might get shot, <laughs> right? <laughs> or, or they don't want to get involved in that. That's the most hated call by police, bar none. Notice the conditional if in that statement. Paul was by no means advocating a blanket salvation. He was advocating a conditional salvation based on the law. Quote, your servant am I, give me understanding and I shall know your instructions. It is time to take action, Yahweh. Your law is being broken. So I love your commandments more than gold, purest gold. So I rule my life by your precepts. I hate all deceptive paths. That's Psalm 119, verses 125 through 128. Quote, not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Did they prophesy correctly? <laughs> and in your name have we cast out devils? And in your name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work lawlessness. Matthew 7, verse 21. These verses define faithfulness to the Father's will, which is what all true Israelites must practice. Faithfulness is obedience to Yahweh's moral laws, which are the basis of personal conduct and also of good government, namely the common law. Anyone who says that Paul is against the moral laws has been deceived by the antinomians. Paul does not use the word faith as an antonym for the word law. That is a misconception. Over the last two millennia, especially recently, the word faith has developed a false, diluted meaning. If a word like faithfulness, which represents taking action or having an active faith, something you live by, can be replaced by a word like faith, which merely represents having a mental attitude, devoid of the responsibility to act upon that attitude, then a major shift in doctrine has been accomplished. Yeah, that's one of the words in Scripture that uh, has really been abused. It always means faithfulness. Introduction. Thankfully, not all of modern churchianity is antinomian. And we just quoted an article by one who is a pronomian. There is still a rational strain of Christian thought, <laughs> although it rarely exists outside of the theologian's study, and it rarely exists outside of Christian identity. The emotionalism of popular Christianity is largely devoid of reason. Given this irrational state of affairs, I was delighted to come across this pronomian commentary in the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible, and I quote, the cause of man's estrangement from God is the sin of man, his persistent disobedience to the will. It should be Israel, the sin of Israel. We are estranged. We can, we're the only ones who can be estranged from God, Yahweh, because he's the only one that gave us. We're the only ones that he gave the commandments to. We're supposed to be the light on the hill, the city on the hill, setting the proper example for the rest of the planet, which, wow. Judeo-Christianity has totally abrogated this position. Totally, absolutely, 100%, totally. So let me start over from this quotation. The cause of Israel's estrangement from God is the sin of Israel. His persistent disobedience to the will of God. 
God is a holy God in spite of this, his great love and boundless mercy. He cannot treat sin as though it did not matter, for it corrupts and degrades human life and thwarts all the purposes of God for Israel's good. God stands ready to forgive and to heal the penitent sinner. But where Israel continues deliberately and defiantly in his wrongdoing, God by his very nature cannot be complacent about it or indulgently indifferent to it. Dreadful penalties are ordained as a consequence of sin. Thank you very much. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. Galatians 6, 7. This law of retribution is part of what is meant by the wrath of God, which which rests upon the unrepentant sinner, Romans 1, 18, and which finds expression in the solemn warning, quote, the wages of sin is death. That's Paul in Romans 6.23. Instead, the sinner is already dead through trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1. Will these people come out of their self-imposed death through repentance? Will they or will they not? That is from the article entitled Atonement. Page 311, Volume 1 of the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible. Very good commentary there. Uh, Don't know who the author is. Several authors to that Interpreter's Dictionary. Did you notice how the author drew his pronomian argument from verses in the epistles of Paul? By creatively ignoring the pronomian statements contained in Paul's writings, the doctrine of antinomianism has deceived millions of unsuspecting sheep This sermon will attempt to explain the how and why of this false theology, which has turned scripture on its head. Next heading, the antinomian deception. Let me state categorically that had the founding fathers of America been antinomian in their thinking, there could not have been a rebellion against George III and the Bank of England. The founders, who were all Bible-believing Christians, were ardent believers in biblical law and law in general, even Thomas Jefferson. Had they been mere mental Christians and not active Christians, then there would have been no American Revolution. There would be no America today. Like the modern antinomian distortionist churches of today's lukewarm dispensation, they would have allowed inactive belief to replace true faithfulness. Yeah, but they never did. Not the founding fathers. On the contrary, The Founding Fathers practiced their faith, putting their principles into action. That's why America exists. This is what Yahshua taught us to do. How is it possible that this philosophy has been so badly perverted? Well, of course, Jews creeping into our congregations, atheists, agnostics, etc., arguing that America is not a Christian nation when it obviously is and will remain such until the judgment day, when those faithful Israelites will be transfigured, just as Yahshua was transfigured, some of us, while we're in the act of living, and transfigured into our glory bodies and enter into the kingdom. Others will have died and are waiting now to get there. I contend that the doctrine of antinomianism is a deliberately conceived, sophisticated ploy, a tactic, which true Israel's enemies have used to get us true Israelites to fall asleep in our faithfulness. With such doctrines as antinomianism, faith only, don't offend the sinner. The distortionists have turned us into zombies. Yes, this is the zombie apocalypse, so that we have become Christian couch potatoes. Do-nothing Christians. This tactic has worked with remarkable success as so many modern Christians support denominations that have called a, created a non-resistance to evil. Non-resistance to evil. As if merely believing in Jesus Christ is all that is required from the Christian and the rest will take care of itself. The ostrich is in the pulpit. And he's got to have a mighty long neck for his stick his head in the ground from the pulpit. Paul clearly tells us that Yahshua is our example. An example must be imitated, not merely observed. Quote, 
Now these things are our, or were, our examples, to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. 1 Corinthians 10.6. See also John 13.15. Christ was our example. An example must be followed. Christianity has never until recently been a spectator sport. That is certainly what it is today. The fact is that the antinomians and their ilk are standing on the sidelines watching the game while real Christians are on the field building the kingdom and engaging the enemy. There is no doubt that Christianity has been deliberately emasculated and depoliticized so that the international Zionist agenda could go forward without any moral outrage from either the pulpits or the pews, pewsters. The Antichrist has succeeded in turning Christians into zombies, and the night of the living dead will surely be the result. I think I wrote these words about 12 years ago. We are witnessing the night of the living dead as a result of the globalist lockdown and the injections, folks. We are seeing it. It is here. James tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why don't the appeasers of evil ever quote this verse? It's because this verse is unequivocal in its opposition to appeasement. The distortionists love to quote Matthew 5, where he says, resist not evil. But the distortionists interpret this verse from their universalistic context, which assumes that Jesus delivered the Sermon on the Mount to all people. That is incorrect. The Sermon on the Mount was exclusively for true Israel. Yes, there were non-Israelites in the audience. That's why he spoke in parables, so that they would not understand, but the Israelites would understand. Quote, I come not but unto the lost or exiled sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 15:24, Matthew 10:6. It was not intended for those of the other races of the world. The proof of this is contained in Matthew 13:10-17, where the apostles asked Yahshua, "Why speak you in parables?" Yes, the world will be in a better place if everybody obeyed Yahweh's laws. But we are the city on the hill. We're supposed to exemplify our Lord and Savior, our King, Yahshua, Messiah. That's today's sermon, folks. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh, pass the ammunition. We'll see you all next time. Bye-bye.